the Poll Maps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. This week, we're joined on our book segment by Nicola Pratt, author of the new book, Embodying Geopolitics, Generations of Women's Activism in Egypt, Jordan, and Lebanon. We'll hear from Andre Bank and Jan Bussa, authors of the article and the introduction to a special issue entitled Mina Political Science Research a Decade After the Arab Uprisings, Facing the Facts on Tremulous Grounds. Thanks for listening. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Andre Bank of the German Institute for Global and Area Studies and Jan Busse of Bundeswehr University Munich uh, to talk about a special issue which they coordinated and uh, wrote the introduction for in Mediterranean politics. Uh, the title of their article is MENA Political Science Research a Decade After the Arab Uprisings facing the facts on tremulous grounds. In full disclosure, I wrote the conclusion for this special issue, so I'm delighted to be able to have this double length feature on uh, this extraordinary collection of essays. Andre, Jan, thank you for joining us. Um, why doesn't one of you begin telling us about uh, the special issue? Yeah, um, thanks for inviting us, Mark. And um, I'm happy to begin um, with the origins of the special issue, which can be traced back basically to 2018, when I organized a small um, workshop, which was designed as an exchange of ideas about the so-called area studies controversy in Beirut, together with colleagues at the American University of Beirut, um, which was generously funded by the um, Arab German Young Academy of Sciences and Humanities. And this was a very, very inspiring exchange of ideas. Um, what can this um, controversy, which has its roots basically in the 1990s, um, give us for contemporary research on the Middle East and North Africa? And um, when I talked uh, um, about this um, whole um, workshop with Andre, we ba both basically came up with the idea that there's um, more to say and um, to follow up based on, on um, this workshop. And eventually we had the idea that the 10th anniversary of the Arab uprisings um, this year is a very good opportunity for an overarching stock taking of the contribution of uh, political science scholarship on the Middle East and North Africa in general. And um, actually, Andre and I, we were very delighted that um, the editors of Mediterranean politics um, felt the same way and were willing to um, you go this way, basically, and um, go through this journey. And I guess Andre has a bit more ideas to um, add on this. Uh, go ahead, Andre. Yeah, thanks, Mark, uh, for having us here. Um, so in addition to what, um, to what Jan just said about the genesis of the project, when we then um, developed it further, I think one, one element that, that stuck was the kind of revisiting of this area studies controversy. So the discussion around the relationship of you know, area-based knowledge uh, from coming from the region and more generalizing political science concept. I think Jan can talk about this a little more, but we broadened this discussion um, for the special issue. And we have, uh, in addition, two other important kind of key guiding uh, questions that we want to ask. The first one is, um, to what extent were the Arab uprisings in 2011 a kind of critical juncture for the respective um, research fields in MENA political science? So in which ways was it really a game changer 
or more of a, of a weaker kind of inflection point, or it didn't change at all uh, in the way we study the Middle East in the region. And another, another question that we, were, we, we, we raised with the special issue uh, revolves around the question of field access. So since the Arab uprisings, um, the political situation in many of the countries, as you all know, have, has worsened, has become more tense, more repressive regimes. So what does this mean in terms of accessing certain countries, accessing certain people, but also on the flip side of it, are there probably new forms of field access, new forms of research methods that we can take, we can make, make use of in studying this? So in the end, um, the special issue tries to cover these three issues, uh, 2011 critical juncture, area studies controversy, and the question of field access pros and cons. And then you chose uh, uh, scholars to write about particular research areas uh, where you could trace these three themes uh, through the study of repression of, of alliances of various things. So tell us about the, con the contributors to the volume and kind of how it all fits together into a, um, an overview of the field as a whole. Yeah, probably I can, I can start here. We basically try to cover three important fields um, of MENA political science. Of course, we cannot cover uh, all of the studies. So what we don't cover, and probably I should start out with this, is bigger questions of Islamism or Islamist politics, questions of refugees, migration, questions of resources or political economy, that all, of course, are very important parts and parcel of MENA political science. We focused uh, instead on three on three still kind of big fields um, of study. One is the question around uh, protest and social movement research. And here, Irene Weipert-Fenner from Peace Research Institute Frankfurt had a very interesting contribution on the study of popular protests in and after 2011. The second uh, contribution is by um, Miriam uh, Edel and Maria Josua from the University of Tübingen and Giga respectively on uh, repression uh, research, a, a field that has strongly expanded in, uh, in comparative politics and diversified. Um, the third contribution is by Morten Walbjörn from the University of Aarhus, who studied the way um, sectarianism or the sectarianism debate has evolved, um, how this can be you know, conceptualized and, and, and studied. Um, and um, then there have been also been two further contributions, uh, which Jan can probably introduce because they are more from the realm of IR. Yeah, exactly. Okay, great. So, Go ahead, Jan. Um, um, the, the third pillar basically is um, the one of international relations. And we have one contribution there by uh, May Dawish. She focuses on alliance politics in the Middle East and North Africa and asks how um, theoretical advancements from the field of IR have contributed to a better understanding of alliance politics in general, and to what extent this um, also affected alliances um, and developments after 2011. And finally, the um, other contribution with um, relation to IR is by Stefan Stetter from um, the Bundeswehr University here in Munich. And um, he basically presented um, uh, re-engagement with the area studies controversy as a starting point in order to argue to what extent um, social theories based in, in sociology basically um, can make a contribution to a rejuvenated 
area studies controversy in the sense of a dialogue or a debate in a constructive way, basically. So these were our contributions and we were indeed happy to have your conclusion as um, the final say, basically, to it. So Jan, that's actually a nice place to, uh, to go then. So this began with, uh, with a discussion about the area of studies controversy. So maybe you could say a little bit about what you understand the area of studies controversy to be and what have we learned about it by this uh, engagement over a series of workshops and the special issue? Yeah, of course. Um, first of all, I think it is um, reasonable to briefly summarize what it is all about because um, many people might not have it um, in mind that freshly. So put simply, um, there is this alleged incompatibility of um, rather disciplinary focused social sciences with a more universalist demand when it comes to um, knowledge production. And on the other hand, we have regional studies with a more particularist um, orientation. Uh, but of course, these are kind of ideal types that are juxtaposed here. And interestingly, originally the driving force of the area studies controversy um, in political science can be identified as comparative politics and especially also, I would say, US comparative politics. And the question was, are these different universes that are not compatible to one another or what kind of implications can we draw from these differences when it comes to the production of knowledge and insight? So for instance, think about a classical um, Middle East scholar who might say um, these social scientists, for instance, IR scholars, they are just unable to comprehend what the region is about because I have the inside knowledge due to my um, language skills, for instance. Um, and then I would say the interesting shift we could observe is um, a, a double shift. On the one hand, I would say the interest in, in the area studies controversy was mainly taken up by scholars in Europe and in particular um, in the field of international relations. So even though, for instance, he did not um, explicitly engage in it, I would say Fratelli, they made a big contribution to it but it was in particular the, the works by Andrea Titi and also by Morton Balbion in the midst of the 2000s um, who talked a lot about um, cross-fertilization between these two different camps instead of putting them separately. And Morton was also the one who highlighted that simply put, you could say there's a certain cultural blindness um, on the side of um, social sciences, whereas area studies might be culturally blinded. So if we move um, forward to our special issue, we can definitely say that um, much has evolved ever since um, the area um, studies controversy. So there is a lot of scholarship um, where scholars basically combine both these camps and there, for, for instance, in um, post-colonial scholarship on, um, on the Middle East. But interestingly, in many cases, this is not framed under the umbrella of the area studies controversy. And um, we in our special issue, we thought that this is definitely a missed opportunity. And, and we think that it's um, a very good kind of um, framework within which you can embed the whole analysis of political dynamics in the region. And basically we thought that um, there's the need to disaggregate the area studies controversy in different ways. So first of all, there was never one single area studies controversy. As I said, you have um, different disciplines, you have different regions, different scholarly communities, and this matters a lot. When it comes to regional divisions, it is very interesting to see that there are probably more 
things in common between US and European um, scholars of comparative politics, whereas there's a greater divide between US and European scholars of IR, for example. Apart from this, we think that this controversy should be about genuine dialogue. And that's why we consider Stefan Stetter's contribution as very useful into this direction. But in addition, we also are convinced that there's a great overlooked emancipatory potential of this controversy. So we think that most often the Middle East and North Africa as other regions of the global South have been viewed as um, objects of studies but the um, potential of these regions and their scholars to produce genuine knowledge on their own has definitely been neglected. And what we are trying is to um, address these issues and also put the Middle East and North Africa into a global context and um, reassess the question, is this region unique or is it just one region um, like any other or is it something in between? So in a nutshell, this is why we thought the area studies um, controversy is a good um, cross-cutting issue that all our um, contributions should address. Awesome. So Andre, why don't we uh, go to the uh, the first like big question for the, uh, the special issue, the one after the area studies controversy, this question about 2011 as a critical juncture or as an inflection point. And, you know, there's a lot of disagreement about that. Uh, I don't know if you saw when we did our poll of, um, of experts on the Middle East, this was probably the most divisive question that we asked, where there was the least uh, consensus on whether 2011 was really a decisive breaking point or whether it was just inflection point or even not that significant at all. So after having you know, thought through the special issue and uh, all this scholarship, where, where, where do you come down on this? And where, what does the special issue have to say about uh, the, the, the significance of 2011? Well, I think uh, a typical scholarly answer is it depends. Um, <laughs> so um, I think the, the contributions to the special issue answer the question quite, quite differently. I think, I think um, for, for studies or for the scholarship on, on protest and social movement studies, I think, I think it was something of a critical juncture uh, in the sense that, um, and Irene Weipert-Fenner's contribution shows that, in the sense that there has been a massive expansion um, of and diversification um, of some of the scholarship and a questioning of some of the more rationalist, structuralist approaches. She, she, she presents um, approaches that are more micro uh, perspectives and then combines them with political economy perspectives. Um, think for instance of all the research around youth and youth protest movements of course, the scholarship you, you yourself contributed to on the ambivalent role of social media, and the question of spatiality of protests, think of Jillian Schwedler's work in her upcoming book on Jordan, but also the transnational dimension of diffusion and learning of, scholar, uh, of, of protest movements. I think this has really been new research there where 2011 really made a difference. Of course, with the 10 years, more than with the first two, three years, we can see that probably there have been earlier movements, you know, uh, how the green movement fits in the Gizi Park protests. So things that you wouldn't consider around directly with the Arab Spring, but I think, you know, that, that belong in this, in this context. So here the answer is more in the affirmative, yes, it was a shift. And I think for the study of repression, you can say the same. Um, for the study of alliances, the contribution by May Darwish, 
she actually says that 2011 wasn't uh, um, a critical juncture, that in the research program here, it didn't really matter much. So the kind of regional alliances that you've seen in the MENA, you know, 2011 didn't change too much uh, of that. What she then brings up, however, on like kind of more bottom up experiences from the region, new phenomena that are more important, for instance, the Syrian Kurds, uh, movements like Hamas uh, and others who are kind of non-state or quasi-state actors in the alliance program. So here, the, pro the Middle East can provide some lessons, but 2011 wasn't probably the game changer. And Morten Walbjörn yet in his contribution on sectarianism provides a third kind of answer. He says in a more meta sense, a meta theoretical sense, um, 2011 probably was um, in the sectarianism research area provided a kind of advancement in that research has become much more sophisticated, theoretically, conceptually, methodologically, but um, it was not a game changer in that you didn't see sectarianism before. So I think what what um, a long um, you know short a short uh, short point on a long answer it really differs from the different viewpoints that you have. For sure, it was you know um, at least an inflection point for some of the field of the research that we saw, but probably not to the same extent. And when you move forward to the current era and questions around whether whether COVID nineteen will be a kind of game changing event ten years later. Probably not, and probably you have to look here again on these more contextualized uh, forms of how this is studied. Well, the COVID-19 actually is a nice segue into the last big question, cross-cutting question, which you ask about, about changing access to the field and what that does to the types of research that we do and the relationships that we form uh, with the people that we study. Um, Jan, do you want to say a little bit about the um, about how this plays out in the special issue and, and, and how we should be thinking about this today? Yeah, for sure. I, th I think the starting point is basically that um, increased levels of repression and um, shrinking spaces of um, individual freedoms and political liberties, of course, also affect research and researchers. And um, interestingly and strikingly, um, this has been um, previously the case as well, but um, after the Arab uprisings, we have seen a number of cases where also scholars with, with Western passports have been um, considerably affected by um, repression and also um, open violence, and even um, the, the death of um, Julio Regeni, everybody remembers it, and was kind of a, a warning sign from every, from, for everybody from um, Europe or um, Northern um, America who um, before that felt that very um, much safe and secured by their own passports. And this has gone basically. And this is something that um, should be addressed more openly and more systematically we thought. And um, there have been a number of very interesting contributions to which we basically relate. So um, there, there's this book by um, Clark and Cavatorter on political science research in the region. There is a very interesting book on safer fieldwork by Janis Grimm and his colleagues. And there is a book about research in authoritarian context by Marlies Glacius from the University of Amsterdam and her colleagues. And all these cover very important ground, but we thought um, the difference um, to us is basically that we embed this in overarching considerations 
when it comes to um, the research itself, be it in IR, comparative politics or social movement studies. And we ask our um, office to, to address these questions. And basically, um, we have seen two major conclusions, I would say, um, or trends for the future um, that are already looming at the horizon. So on the one hand, we think that it's very likely that there will be a resort to seemingly safe topics and seemingly safe countries um, in the sense that it will be much more difficult to get access to countries where you put your individual safety at risk. So um, for instance, there could be much more um, um, research on Tunisia in this sense. And on the other hand, of course, you have to ask yourself, um, how do you deal with limited field access? And um, we think this is a very tricky question because you cannot end up in a situation without any data as such. And therefore, you should definitely look for alternative um, sources of data. And we thought that, for instance, ideas such as crisis mapping, um, but also the very interesting projects of forensic architecture by A.L. Weizmann and his team in London could be one way of addressing this. But of course, this does not replace um, field work as such. Um, so it's definitely a very challenging question to ask. One other theme, which I saw running through a lot of our conversations, and um, which I brought up in my in my conclusion also, is the ways that the the divide between comparative politics and international relations uh, really starts to break down in the scholarship. You've got a lot of people who we typically think of as comparativist scholars talking about international relations now, and and most of the IR scholars that we in our community delve really deeply into comparative politics, regime security, and the like. So Andre, do you want to say a little bit about how that plays out in uh, the scholarship that you survey for the special issue? Yeah, sure. So my sense is that a number of the contributions that we have in the special issue are in a way hard to place in the, in the classic camp one or the other. For instance, take Morten Walbjörn's uh, contribution on sectarianism. Is the sectarianism debate one about comparative politics or is it about IR? But even the ones who have more of, a, of an alleged comparative ring, like for instance, the contribution by Maria and, uh, and Miriam on repression, they show the, the very important amount of the transregional, uh, the, sorry, the transnational and regional forms, the cross-border forms of repression, of policing, and so on. Or on the flip side, May Darvish's contribution on, um, on the alliances now, when you include non-state actors that only control kind of sub-national space, is that is that you know is that more comparative or is that more IR? So I think a number of the issues that we have, but you can also add the question of proxy warfare, like the big project by Ariel Ram and others. Um, you know, that's really crisscrossing this. And in many ways, the very interesting and cutting-edge stuff, I think, is actually happening. In this, you know, zone between comparative politics um, and IR. And last example, perhaps in this regard, the whole discussion around COVID-19 and the way either political actors on the government side or on the protest side, the way they try to use this, you know, some governments frame it as a kind of terrorist-type threat that you have to fight against uh, in the against the internal enemy, the threat from the outside. So in many ways. You know, this IR comparative division needs to be questioned. And I think it is here where our special issue gives, you know, presents some avenues, 
but there are certainly more. And I think the field of MENA political science should really take this on and you know, uh, progress it further. Thanks. Well, very much agreed. I guess one last question uh, for either or both of you. Um, facing the facts on tremulous grounds, that's a wonderful word. What makes the grounds tremulous and what were you trying to say? Yeah, maybe I um, make a start. So I would say th this has a dual um, dimension. So on the one hand, I would say these kind of shaky grounds um, can be um, a synonym um, or an image of the region itself, which is permanently in shift and nothing which is stable. And on the other hand, um, and also of course linked to it, it's um, also the, the foundations of, of knowledge which are shaky and which should certainly be shaky because then they should permanently be questioned because otherwise um, knowledge cannot progress in advance. I think uh, Jan, you've, you've answered in a convincing way, thanks. Well, I'd like to thank both of you, Jan Bosa and Andre Bank for uh, joining us to talk about the special issue. Uh, thanks for including me in the special issue and for all your work in getting it done. Uh, thank you so much for spending the time with us. This is the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined on today's book segment by Nicola Pratt of the University of Warwick. Uh, she's the author of a new book, Embodying Geopolitics, Generations of Women's Activism in Egypt, Jordan, and Lebanon, just published by University of California Press. And Nicola, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. So tell us about your book. Okay, so uh, primarily it's a history of women's activism in Egypt, Jordan and Lebanon, um, starting from sort of the time of national independence and until the Arab uprisings and well, like the aftermath of the Arab uprisings. Um, the book sort of maps the changes in women's activism over this time. So like changes in practices and goals um, in and as well as, in, as changes in gender norms and uh, women's subjectivities, which um, inform their activism. And it's based on just over a hundred um, personal narratives that I collected amongst uh, women activists of different generations. Um, so it was important for me to be able to capture the experiences um, that reflected those sort of historical changes over time. Uh, and I was very lucky to get a, uh, a fellowship that allowed me to travel to Egypt, Jordan and Lebanon in 2013 to 2014 and spend time in each of those countries and uh, in order to collect these, these personal histories. And you were able to talk to not only kind of younger activists, but also kind of a lot of women who were active all the way back through history. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, the, um, I think the eldest woman I interviewed was um, Linda Matar in Lebanon, who, mashallah, is still going strong. And she was born in the 1920s. So her activism began sort of just before Lebanon gained independence and she was active in the uh, women's mobilizations to gain the vote. Um, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's been fascinating to collect these stories and to hear some of the, the you know, the histories of women's activism that some of which are not that well known, um, particularly, you know, the period in like the 50s and 60s 
um, and 70s where because a lot of women's activism during that time was not necessarily focused on women's rights or informed by sort of any sort of feminist necessarily any feminist um, ideologies there's tendency to ignore that activism you know women's involvement in sort of radical uh, ideological movements that uh, emerged in the Middle East uh, in the Arab world in the from the 1950s onwards um, so yeah but obviously I also do cover uh, women's activism based on women's rights you know goals of women's rights and and that that sort of is the sort of more hegemonic type of activism from the 1990s onwards and then there's a broader theoretical ambition as well. It's not only a history, this, this mm. idea of using this feminist methodology to try and challenge prevailing narratives about geopolitics and comparative politics. Tell us a little bit about that and where your book fits in with these feminist approaches to uh, the study of the region. Yeah, so, you know, the main claim that I'm making in the book is that uh, women's activism should be considered as a form of embodied geopolitics. And by using this term uh, embodied geopolitics, I'm building on a body of work by feminist IR scholars and feminist geopolitics um, scholars, as well as sort of critical, ge that field of critical geopolitics and, and post-colonial uh, theories more broadly. Um, and what I want to show is how um, women's activism, first of all, should be thought of as an embodied activity, um, that it's, it's not just about the sort of end point, the goals or the, the ways in which women activists frame their activism, all of that's important, but it's to think that in order to be an activist, you need to be in the, in the public sphere, interacting with the public sphere, um, as, and as a woman, obviously, that that the gendered aspect um, of of your of your actual body, if you like, is significant. Um, and and through these interactions um, in in the public sphere uh, and and the performance of particular types of gender norms, these have uh, implications for wider structures of power. Uh, and in particular, I focus on. Um, geopol geopolitical processes um, of state building, um, anti-colonial uh, struggle, um, anti-regime uprisings, what have you, but all of these um, uh, types of political processes, uh, they are, in, by women's involvement in them, that that performance of gender in and of itself then has implications for how those processes unfold. Um, yeah, so overall, the, the book shows how particular constructs of gender that are performed through women's activism then um, have uh, implications for the reproduction or the disruption of geopolitical power, the exercise of power at different geopolitical scales. You, you had a really fascinating uh, interpretation of the role that gender played in the anti-colonial and then the immediate post-colonial period. And uh, tell us a little bit about that, this, the way that this inner realm and outer realm were used um, in the construction of these campaigns. Yeah, so 
what I argue is uh, building on post-colonial um, theorizations of sovereignty, in particular national sovereignty, um, and the way in which national sovereignty is imagined uh, in relation to anti-colonial struggle. So the, you know, the predicament of the colonized is that on the one hand, they are deemed to be, you know, the, the colonizer deems them supposedly backward. Um, and that's then the reason why uh, they need to be colonized. And gender is often the marker of that um, supposed constructed backwardness. And as a result of that, then um, anti-colonial nationalists May, I mean, gender was, was a key terrain then on, on, upon which to sort of state claims to sovereignty. Uh, and, and women then became sort of the markers of both the potential for modernity and progress, which are key attributes, um, you know, in, in the national, international state system, you know, um, key, key attributes of, a, of an independent state. But at the same time, uh, women were also the markers of national difference. Um, between the colonizer and, and the colonized, between mm. the, the West and the Middle East. So women, women's bodies and gender have this uh, very key vital role in the construction and legitimization of national sovereignty. Um, and this, um, you see how this plays out then in the way in which particular gender norms emerge that then regulate women's activism in certain ways. Uh, so women, for example, uh, have sort of in that period of anti-colonial and, and, and initial post-colonial state building, often women's activism was in line with this idea of women being both um, markers of progress, but simultaneously markers of national difference. What Afsanir Najmabadi, the Iranian historians, very neatly summarized as women need to be both modern yet modest. And the way in which that women have embodied that in their activism is often through sort of humanitarian welfare, voluntary work, uh, welfare, providing welfare services. Um, so through that public work, they are both uh, an acting um their their modesty but also um contributing to sort of the the progress of the uplifting of the nation um and and that's that sort of dominant that norm of uh, female respectability sort of uh, has been the one that has sort of regulated women's activism over time but it, it it's changed in its nature and through uh, and women have managed to resignify uh that norm of female respectability through their own activism um, and, and sort of expand it into new, new, new spheres of activity. It seems like I could see a straight line running from that discussion of the uh, kind of the anti-colonial and then the post-colonial period right up to the uh, post-1989 period where you look at the, what, the NGOization of women's activism and kind of the, and its appropriation as, as you put it, as like the signal of being pro-Western. Um, and and that's, a, that's a really interesting part of, of the book and that through line uh, I found quite fascinating. So tell us a little bit more about that and how, how, how you saw that fitting into your reading of women's place in these, um, in, in these activities. Yeah, so I think because the NGOization, there's a whole debate over NGOization and um, there's, 
as I sort of just lay out in the book, the tendency has been to see either NGOization of women's movements as a bad thing because it sort of co-opts them into neoliberal forms of governance. Um, it depoliticizes them. On the other hand, a more liberal interpretation of NGOization is that actually it's enabled women's movements to, or, women, or women's activism to, to grow. Um, and uh, it's um, given, uh, it, it's sort of made women's activism more eff effective or, or uh, more professionalized, and that's a good thing. So, I mean, there are these tensions in, um, these big tensions in how NGOization is thought of. Um, and what I tried, what I discovered, you know, through listening to women's narratives is that that sort of polarized type of understanding is not really very useful to to understand how women activists in Jordan, Lebanon and Egypt have um, having have participated in NGOization, you know, and, and so I sort of see like it's really important not to essentialize uh, or homogenize women activists in this respect. And I sort of identify maybe three um, key strands of women's NGO act activism. Um, one has is basically a, a, a new or a, a, an updating of a much older tradition of women's welfare um, and humanitarian activities. Which you very much see as a form of activism. Yes, it is a form of activism. It's not a form of activism that is confrontational towards dominant power. Although uh, through that activism, women may resignify certain um, gender norms or, or um, yeah, make, make incremental achievements um, that are positive for women. But it's not a confrontational form of uh, activism. However, there's, there's another trend of uh, NGO activism, which is building on a much more, a relatively recent trend of women's political activism, which dates back to um, mainly to the post-1967 period, when you have the emergence of radical nationalist and um, left-wing movements in the wake of the Arab defeat. Uh, in the 67 war and women's political women's involvement in those political um, movements that generation of women many of them were at the forefront of the creation of new NGOs in 1990s that had a much more political um, that had more political aims you know to challenge authoritarianism to advance women's rights um, and then you've got, you've seen uh, more uh, recent generations of women have um, used, uh, for them, like creating their own NGOs has also been a, a way for them to pursue their own uh, strategies um, and get away from uh, all, what they see as the the domination of the women's rights activists field by older generations of women. So young, so newer generations have been able to leverage uh, NGOs in a way that allows them to pursue 
um, the goals and the and the methods that they they see fit. So, you, you know, there's a range of reasons why women have participated or, or formed or created NGOs, and it's um, neither yeah to think of it simply in a sort of binary is not really very helpful, and that women. And in general, one of the points of the book is to show that women's activism can have effects on multiple scales and they're not necessarily consistent. You know, you can um, enact positive change maybe at at the local level, but uh, whilst reinforcing um, dominant power relations at at the national level, for example, or even the, the global level. So or vice versa. So um, it's really important to think about um, women's activism, whether it's NGO activism or other forms of activism, it's much more complex than sort of either, either or, you know, these binaries. I found it fascinating one moment in your book where when, when we're talking about that NGOization thing, where you were talking about how as a, as kind of a Western critical scholar, you go in expecting there to be this kind of opposition to global norms, uh, you know, global gender norms and that sort of thing. But the actual activists you talk to were often quite positive about it because they saw it as giving them opportunities to leverage that at home. And at that tension, I thought was one of the real, it, it spotlights the value of having these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's about, um... The, the context, it's very important to think about the context in which women are uh, and, and the histories of that context as well. So in particular, in, for, for women activists who uh, were coming out of, politi- for example, political parties or political movements where women's rights had been subordinated to the you know more what were deemed to be more important political issues like the national question um and and you know women's maybe women's issues have been you know the the woman question had been given sort of um lip service but was always uh marginalized and and women were also marginalized within the decision making of those organizations so yeah seeing then the uh, having having this access to this uh, language of of, of uh, women's rights um, that's powerfully backed up by international uh, conventions gave yeah it gave women the chance to pursue a gender oriented agenda it gave them the tools to do that but at the same time women have adapted that agenda to their own particular contexts. Uh, and and that's that's also important to to look at how these universal norms are then translated into the local context. Um, but I, I you know I've also uh, wanted to highlight how again this is the effects of this are much more complex than simply women challenging patriarchy, for example, um, and that. Uh, oftentimes women or first of all women draw on um this uh this gendered national sovereignty imaginary of you know the inner and the outer sphere the Mm -hmm. the or the you know the authentic um 
inner inner sphere and the and the outward facing sort of out, um, sphere of, of progress and modernity, and they and they draw on that to leave and they leverage that, it, for example, through um, justify, for example, using religion, religious based arguments to justify certain women's rights demands. Um, so. They're also so in although they're challenging they they're, they're challenging some forms of power at the same time they're reproducing um, the same sort of understanding of, of national sovereignty and its gendered underpinnings so yeah this is again how it's much more it, it, it it's necessary to see women's activism as having these effects on on different levels. It, it seems like this really comes into focus on something like uh, the Suzanne Mubarak question. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, state feminism um, is one of the, that, that relationship between women activists and state feminism is perhaps one of those um, really good examples of how uh, women women's activism can have uh, different can be both positive can have positive effects and negative effects so the the the, the Suzanne, I mean Suzanne Mubarak obviously is the is the face of the of Mubarak era state feminism but I mean similarly state state feminism has always existed in some form or another in, in Egypt and other and and Jordan and Lebanon the the fact that the state um, supports certain rights for women uh, has made it, um, has given it some sort of legitimacy, particularly um, amongst uh, women rights activists. Not all women's rights activists, but for many women's rights activists, this is a positive um, aspect of the state and uh, that they support. and. Uh, it particularly, you can see how that played out in the uh, post-Arab Spring, mm -hmm. sorry, Arab uprising era, where the there was a fear amongst many women activists that the rise of Islamists to power was going to take away uh, or roll back women's rights. And as a result of that, in case of Egypt, women, many women rights activists actually sided with the military uh, as a way of protecting these state feminist gains. So this is like that sort of element of women's rights and it's uh, the way it's implicated in state power is it, it does make it very difficult to sometimes uh, to, to see how women's uh, to, to see women's rights activism merely as just sort of challenging uh, patriarchy, but it's actually can be helping to reinforce the legitimacy of, of ruling regimes, even if people don't necessarily, you know, actively support those regimes, that narrative, those sort of, that narrative around modernist notions of gender and the association of women's rights with progress um, can, can contribute to uh, re-legitimizing authoritarian regimes. The, one of the things which was really interesting towards the end of your book was 
the way you read kind of these gendered narratives of fear, um, the post 2013, whether it's coming from Syria and radiating out in, into uh, Lebanon and Jordan or the post coup period in, in Egypt, to talk about that a little bit and the specifically gendered uh, aspect to this reimposition of authoritarianism. Yeah, so um, I think this this is a chapter really w which clearly shows how modernist notions of gender, when I say modernist notions of gender, this idea that progress in women's rights is a marker of modernity, that women's visibility um, in the public sphere is a marker of, uh, of uh, modernity. Um, so this chapter should... I think clearly shows how how these notions of modernist no notions of gender have been implicated in um, sort of the counter revolutionary uh, processes that occurred in the wake of the Arab uprisings. Uh, not not only counter revolutionary processes, but sort of projects of securitization and authoritarian renewal and, and other types of exclusionary politics. So I build on this concept from. Um, which is also from sort of political geography, um, Rachel Payne and Susan Smith call it the politics of fear, that fear is not natural, but it's constructed. Mm -hmm. And it's constructed out of the everyday and the particular insecurities that um, particular groups uh, experience or, or, or perceive. Uh, and, and these in turn are linked to uh, social inequalities um, and these gendered politics um, of fear uh, I would say that we see in the wake of the Arab uprisings is very much uh, as I alluded to earlier this the fear that women feel at the, pos at the uh, possibility that the right that women's rights will be rolled back um, and or that women's um, ability to you know safely go out into the public sphere will be compromised and and the two main groups that i think were sort of uh were the objects of that fear one was the islamists but the other one was uh syrian refugees and that's not to say that the women i interviewed um expressed you know virulently and you know anti-refugee rhetoric or anything but it's more the case that refuge that the influx of refugees as a result of the Syrian crisis was seen as sort of disrupting well uh, first of all sort of disrupting um uh the idea of um, you know the ability of families to uh, to sort of socially reproduce, um, you know, to have to have access to school and, and 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 food and jobs, and that you know somehow the Syrian refugees were threatening that they were taking away potential jobs. They were um, there, there were too many of them. They were you know they were in schools and. And then there were also fears about violence. So Syrian refugee men in particular 
were seen as sources of violence and insecurity and women's safety was compromised as a result of that. So, uh, and, and obviously I've already mentioned with regards to the Islamists, how fears of the Islamists led women to sort of side with um, the military in, in Egypt. Um, so we see how that these fears, although on the one hand, um, it's not that they are not, I mean, it's not that you can't be sympathetic to them, but the problem is that those narratives, they naturalize um, sort of racialized hierarchies um, and, and create sort of others who are then uh, deemed to be then a sort of justifiable object either of violence in the case of the Islamists or of exclusion and containment in the case of refugees. So yeah, that, that this is a, I think this is where you really see the dangers of this particular way in which gender and women's rights is understood in relation to national sovereignty. And maybe building off of that, maybe one last question then is that, you know, the, the ambition of the book uh, obviously goes beyond only these three countries and, and the, the histories and narratives that you're telling. Um, and, and you call, as others have, for really taking gender seriously in uh, kind of a broad swath of the study of international relations and, you know, and comparative politics. So what, what would you hope that people would take away from your book and, and kind of be sure to include as they go ahead with all the different kinds of political science research that's going on in the region? Where, where do you see gender as necessarily um, impacting that research? Well, obviously I'd say that gender is always there if you want to see it. So yeah, so first of all, people need to pay attention to gender. That means thinking about how, that, that means going beyond just thinking about women Though I think that women and women's bodies are a very useful starting point for tracing the ways in which power operates. Um, and, uh, but it, it's, about, it's, go, it's about going beyond women and women's bodies to think about how uh, gender is implicated in the exercise of power and the spatialization of power. Uh, and that touches all sorts of political processes, um, all sorts of aspects of war, uh, peacemaking, uh, economic crisis, um, authoritarian renewal. I mean, gender is always there and it's always playing a vital role. Uh, and I think, you know, it just has been so overlooked by scholars of Middle East politics and international relations with the exception of feminists. I should say that, you know, of course, there's a huge amount of very important feminist work that's been done in the field of Middle East studies. It's mainly done by anthropologists, historians, um, probably missing out a very important group here <laughs> my mind has gone blank um but it's not done by political scientists um on the whole and when political scientists do 
uh, look at gender does tend to just be looking at women, for example, women's political participation um, without um, sort of questioning the, the more the, the broader relations of power in which women are operating in. Um, so I think there's a huge, huge, huge amount of work that, 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 that it's wide open. There's all sorts of ways in which um, the, the current literature could, could have, you know, you could introduce um, a gendered lens. Um, but I would also hope that um, for, um, for feminists already doing work uh, in the Middle East, on the Middle East, and as I said, these are mainly uh, in uh, these are anthropologists, mainly anthropologists or historians, but they think more about the wider geopolitical context, um, and that yeah. that that wide that, that that wider geopolitical context is actually also very important for the shaping of gender norms. Um, for the for the types of activism that women carry out, so I think there's both for both sort of sets of um, research communities that I, I, I hope that there are things that can be taken from from my book and, and built upon further. Wonderful. We've been speaking with Nicola Pratt about her new book, Embodying Geopolitics. Nicola, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you again. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you.